From Osiris Media, this is Beautiful Garbage, a look at how America unleashed punk rock on the world. I'm Kevin Hogan, and over the next six episodes, we will be tracing the development of punk rock from American bars and garages to England in the mid to late 70s and back, looking at the important figures in their work. Today in episode four, A Season in Hell, we dig into another woman who changed rock and her band Talking Heads, trace the movements of Richard Hell, and examine how a clothier named Malcolm took Hell's look and the New York Dolls sound to create a marketing juggernaut that propelled punk to the world. months from March 1975 to September 1976 saw a seismic shift in American music that would have worldwide ramifications. New wave, hair metal, and what many laymen think of as punk were all in their infancy at CBGB's. CBGB's brought the spotlight back on New York full force. <clears throat> there were writers and graphics artists and painters. I wondered how hard it was to play a bass. <clears throat> that came first, how you look up on the stage, your image, how you hold the guitar. These are the top priorities, then worry about how to play it. Through punk rock, I learned how to connect with and to reach and to understand the disenfranchised and marginalized team. You know, you're not seeing mohawks or punk rock haircuts or anything, you know, it's a, it's a downtown scene. Being called punk rockers, even though being lumped together and having this kind of handle made it easier for us to all to be thought of in, in, uh, as, a, as a movement and, be, and to be written about. This was the moment gravity shifted. And when we put down our feet, it was a different world. But we wouldn't know the full extent for a few years. As we heard in the last episode, women had made quite an impact on this burgeoning music scene. While Smith and Harry took control from behind the microphone, other women did it with their instruments, like bassist Tina Weymouth. It was Chris's idea to form this band it took two years for me to enter into it. Why was that? I just thought that it was too difficult, you know? I just thought, I'm just going to be up against a lot of flack. For being the girl? Yes. But Chris had another idea. He thought it was going to bring attention to the group. And it did. And it worked. In June of 1975, she, along with her boyfriend Chris Franz on drums, and a Baltimore transplant, David Byrne, on vocals and guitar, played their first gig as Talking Heads on the CBGB stage. As soon as we had enough songs to play, whatever, 30, 35 minutes, we auditioned. And 
I think we played the following week or something, and then like three weeks after that, we were on the cover of the Village Voice or something. And it was kind of like, gosh, did we ever get in the right place at the right time? <laughs> it was it was pretty uh, angular and jittery, you know, <laughs> the whole performance. And it was it was a lot of nervousness involved in it. No, nobody appeared to be like a, totally a, comfortable. A, <laughs> it was an auspicious beginning. But within two years, they were the darlings of the underground and had made inroads to the mainstream. Seymour Stein, from Sire Records, going to see his latest signing, The Ramones, caught them in November of 1975. Going down to CBGB that night when I found the Talking Heads, I was down there to see the Ramones, who I had just signed. It was a beautiful night in November. It was almost like spring. And I was standing out there with Lenny Kay, the guitar player in the Patti Smith group. And all of a sudden, I hear music coming out. I felt myself just moving more and more till I was inside the door and I was riveted. Former modern lover Jerry Harrison joined Talking Heads in 77 after the release of their debut single, Love Building on Fire. It allowed the band to expand its almost artsy, unpunk style and quickly Burns' detached lyrical observations and sparse musical accompaniment gelled into a brilliant catch-all of rock and roll, Afrobeats, ambient noise, and rhythm and blues. The eventual impact of Weymouth, both with Burn and Talking Heads, and the Tom Tom Club can't be overstated and beg the question, even in 1975, as to what punk really was and could be. An almost existential question that would be answered as punk weathered commercial acceptance and a fracturing into several subgenres. With Talking Heads, Television, and Blondie moving towards more experimental and pop sounds, adding keyboards and exotic rhythms, that manifested itself as alternative and new wave as we entered the 1980s. While in L.A. during the same time period, hair metal rose out of the Dolls legacy that was reborn in Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan in The Heartbreakers, and in its purest form, punk. Right. 
bunk that had been created by a shrewd businessman from England named Malcolm. Malcolm McLaren may have been a footnote in the English punk story if it wasn't for a trip to New York where he met the New York doll Sylvian Sylvian, who owned his own clothing brand, Truth and Soul. Well, Truth and Soul, you know, is, is, there's a lot of it, you know, I mean, it, just, it started with sweaters, but now it, I make hats. I know, you have your, your own kept company, yeah. <laughs> and I, I make guitar straps, so Truth and Soul was like, it was really, uh, um, started with me and Billy Mercia, okay. you know, back in the, in the late 60s, actually, actually. With his then-girlfriend Vivian Westwood, he had been in business of catering to the Teddy Boy subculture in England and its almost Edwardian look and repackaging it at their storefront, Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die, at 430 Kings Road in London. I had opened a store originally to sell old retro. I was one of those early retread stores that sold in 1971 rock and roll clothing of 1951 in a shop that was known as Let It Rock on the King's Road. The look was a tribute to 50s American rock and roll, but began to evolve when McLaren and Westwood added leather and studs to their inventory, and by 1974 had renamed their store Sex due to the focus on fetish wear. So me in fashion at the time, owning a store on the King's Road, knew fully well that if I had an idea, the way for that idea to work would be to channel it through music. In 1975, he took up the title of the New York Dolls manager, having moved to New York. They were so bad. When they attempted to play rock and roll, I thought it was such a cacophonous racket that it made me laugh. And their sheer audacity, I thought, was phenomenal. Malcolm made a note of everything it took that he's seen made a reaction. He jotted this down on paper if he had to, maybe that night, but he jotted it down constantly, always. Uh, he had a lot of other things in mind. Little by little, he wanted to take over. He wanted to manage the group, which I thought totally was a damn fucking joke. And he was always looking for the next big thing, which found him at CBGB's, where Richard Hell was still playing bass with television. Slowly, I began to move around New York and found a small bar called CBGB. It seemed to be a scene. 
And there was one character in the corner. His name was Richard Hell. And I noticed his T-shirt was very cleverly designed. Being a haberdasher from the King's Road, I was very <laughs> enticed by this T-shirt. And him playing this song, which was his song, called Blank Generation. I began to adore the idea of new rock and roll through then. This look became the laser focus of Malcolm McLaren, as it was the perfect vehicle to sell his fetish wear. Call your lover boy. Meanwhile, the New York Dolls were riding on fumes, and one night in Florida, Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan decided to pull the bus over mid-tour and get off. At the time, we thought, well, this is finished. We, we've done everything we can do with this, so... Screw you, goodbye, and blah, 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 and everybody was just... It was over at that point. It was just a bunch of kids having a good time. Until the business started getting into it, and the business sort of f***ed it all up. At the same time, television was also collapsing under the strain of internal squabbles, and Richard Hell was fired, or quit, or they both just realized it was time to part ways. I'm gonna find you. I was never pretending that I could play. You can make great rock and roll with the most simplest means, and that's the only way I can make great rock and roll. Like a songwriter and a singer who played bass because it was convenient. I wasn't interested in being a bass player in Tom's band, and that's the only, and, and that's what being in television eventually became clear was all the only role for me. Uh, it became clear pretty quickly that we, we, I was going to have to leave.
Beyond changing the musical landscape at CBGB, it was also a delineation for the new wave mod look and punk look, with Richard Hell and his ripped clothes, safety pins, and spiked hair on one side, and television's desire to tone down their look. I thought he was like a Paul McCartney, only goofy. Like, like a Paul McCartney, loopy. Loopy and goofy, but, you know, and, and the spirit, you know, he designed all the posters, he, he kept us in the torn clothing. You know, as soon as he was gone, the torn clothing went the, went the way of the wind, you know. This left hell without a band. Johnny and Jerry were planning their next moves, and by the time they returned to New York City, they had a blueprint, the Heartbreakers. What happened is that I just got a phone call from him. He'd heard um, that I left the band, and he and Jerry had just decided to leave the Dolls, and he wanted to uh, make a band with me. But yeah, there wasn't any discussion in advance. It wasn't like, listen, I'm ready to leave television, and you guys ready to leave the Dolls, and nothing like that. No, I was surprised, really surprised when I heard from him. I didn't know the Dolls. I didn't know that he was going to leave the Dolls, and I, when they were in Florida, he called me from Florida. I was surprised he found out so quickly that I'd left television because it was within a couple of days. plans for the Heartbreakers were the same as what television was when we first started television, which is that there were two singers and songwriters in the group. In television it was me and Tom, and Heartbreakers was me and Johnny. And that pretty much the, the, we'd, we'd share the singing and, and songwriting. He had never really been a singer, and I'd, uh, they were basically inviting me to be the singer, though it was understood that uh, Johnny would, would be writing some songs too, and he'd be singing the ones he wrote. From the beginning, a second guitar and voice were part of the Heartbreakers plan. Fast forward a few months and Walter Lohr joins the band on second guitar and they played their first gig on July 4, 1975 at CBGB. We had just heard like the week before that the Dolls had broken up and Johnny and Jerry came back to New York and they had Richard Hell, so it was like the first punk supergroup, I guess you'd call it. And, um, they were looking for another guitar player. So that night at the, at the first Demas gig, Jerry and Johnny showed up at, at the gig at the 82 Club. And, they, um, and after the show was over, Johnny pulls me aside and said, hey, you want to join a band? I'm going, no, no, no. I, no obviously, I said, yeah. But it was like, um, he said, OK, you'll come to an audition next week. You know, so, so I went to some Midtown studio with him and Hell and Jerry. I mean, we went through the songs, and it was, um, you know, they were good songs. They had Chinese Rocks and Blank Generation, and I think Wanna Be Love was there, too.
They were truly a group effort in the beginning, with Lure, Hell, and Thunders all sharing vocal duties. But visually, they were strange. Jerry and Johnny were both still very much New York glam, while Hell was the poster boy for what would become the punk aesthetic. Lyrically, they also diverged, with Hell looking towards the nihilism of French poets and Thunders espousing the same New York Dolls Party ethos. And it eventually came to a head a little over a year later. Richard Hell was a little cool to you at first as a member of the band because you were like a urbane junkie. Well, yeah, I wasn't. I didn't have any creds yet. I, yeah, yeah. I was still just, you know, a guitar playing a band. So it was like, so when I would bring in a song like one track of mine, I'd written the music. Um, uh, Hell would say, "Oh, I had to sing that." So, that. so he insisted. So he thought he was a genius, and he, he he did have some sort of creds, you know, with the television stuff. So I didn't really have a the. Uh, the strength to say no, you can't. I want to sing a song like that because he didn't want me singing all fuck. But um, and, and, and so that was in the beginning. So Hell thought he was a poetic genius, and he, he used to say he only he went into rock and roll because you couldn't sell poetry back then. You could sell you, you could sell music with poetry attached to it. So that's how he did it. But um, after six months or so, it came out. It, he wanted to sing all the songs. He didn't want Johnny to write anything. He didn't want me to write anything unless I, unless I let him sing it. So it just got sort of unbearable after a while. He was just trying to take over and it didn't work. I got more and more ambitious about uh, what I, you know, in a way it's kind of ironic because it, it's like I eventually realized that I wanted to have the kind of control of a group that um, Tom realized that he wanted to have control after he'd uh, you know, been in a group for a while. Yeah, I wanted a band where um, I could try um, doing things that uh, just wouldn't interest Johnny or Jerry. I mean, um, exotic ideas of what solos would be like or, uh, you know, like extended um, uh, sections or uh just messing with the possibilities that whereas they were really about driving basic rock and roll coming out of like uh you know Eddie Cochran or whatever <clears throat> um that's really that's really that's all they were interested in doing it was and they did it great and I loved being a part of it uh but I just I wanted to try other kinds of stuff and um uh it just wouldn't have worked with the Heartbreakers, so. Hell tried to seed control of the band, and the other three walked, continuing on as the Heartbreakers without him. Hell, undeterred, quickly assembled a band, and Richard Hell and the Voidoids were born. E 
Hell assembled a two-guitar attack of Robert Quine and Ivan Julian, with Mark Bell on drums rounding out the lineup. It was Quine and Mark Bell and me looking for a, a second guitar player, you know, a partner for Bob. Um, and Ivan showed up, and it was pretty much immediate that he got the slot. They released their debut LP in 1977, Blank Generation, and it represented punk in its purest form, pushing Iggy Pop's nihilism and mixing the Heartbreaker's power with television's intricate guitar attack. Betrayal takes two Who did it to who? I mean, not to be cut by your sole point of view Well, feelings will change We're helpless, they must But we like it that way Eliminates trust But that cut on your arm Where the blood is still fresh And the thought of some harm That We thought that uh, the whole world looked all, you know, pompous and sentimental and dishonest, and uh, and it was reflected in the rock and roll that was going on at that time too, you know. So we wanted to just kind of cut through the shit and uh, and, and bring bring it back to the street, where you know, I mean, that's what rock and roll is supposed to be about—is you know, teenage reality, you know. It would be Hell's longest-running project, lasting into the early 80s, even though there was no commercial success to be found. It is also where punk was authentic. Simply because at its core, the songs existed outside any intention of mass acceptance, and the lyrics were as close to pure pop poetry as rock and roll ever got. and a half that Hell went from television to the Heartbreakers to the Voidoids, his former band, along with the Ramones, Blondie, and Talking Heads, plied their trade as record companies came calling. Record companies certainly didn't care. They were much more interested in their established artists, as always. And um, Sire Records, who had a need to find something new, uh, did get into this scene and, and benefit. Uh, had private stock signed, uh, well, let's see, who did they sign? They signed, Sire signed uh, Talking Heads, Ramones, um, you know, quite a few other bands, but among those. Uh, Arista signed uh, Patty, uh, uh, private stock then had Blondie, 
uh, let me see, dictators and television went to Electra at that point. The Ramones were the first of the CBGB bands to release an album, and their self-titled debut didn't make a splash in America, but it did open the floodgates in England. Next episode, we'll look into how the burgeoning scene in New York City was grafted onto a fledgling scene on London's southeast side by Malcolm McLaren, who took the fashion, sound, and attitude of American underground music and turned England into the face of punk rock in the late 70s. I'm Kevin Hogan, and this is Beautiful Garbage, presented by Osiris Media. For more podcasts that connect you deeply to the music you love, check out OsirisPod.com. Osiris.